When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack out and going... Just reminded to say that we are on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com forward slash history hack, you can see all the amazing tiers that start from just £3 a month. But we know that supporting a pod that you might not listen to all of the episodes on, for shame, you may want to just tip us for an episode. So we have signed up with Ko-Fi. So if you go to ko-fi.com forward slash history hack, you can tip us for an episode that you've listened to and quite liked. So whichever way you're able to support us, whether that's just sharing the pod with your friends or being able to support us financially, we cannot thank you enough. So without further ado. Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War air power podcast, Hedge Hopping with me, Matt Bone. It's a beautiful sunny day today, so all my neighbors are cussing their lawns and cussing down trees. So if there is background noise, I apologize profusely, but that will not distract from our conversation today because our story starts on the night of the 14th, 15th of November, 1940, which we now remember as the Coventry Blitz. It was a raid that sent shockwaves through Britain. But within the RAF, a few looked very closely at what the leading group of Heinkel 111s, known as Camp Group 100, had done to find the target as accurately as they had. The irony of it is that the study of this raid led directly to the birth of the Pathfinder force that would revolutionize Bomber Command's war. In his superb new book, The Pathfinders, Will Iredale looks at the Pathfinder force and its creation, and especially the men and women who made the motto, we guide to strike, so terrifyingly effective. Will, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Hi, Matt. I'm doing very well, and thank you very much for uh, inviting me on on this gorgeous day. Yeah, it's beautiful if we're sat inside on a Zoom call. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so how's lockdown been for you? Is this this book a a product of, of lockdown, or did you crack on with it a little bit beforehand? Uh, sort of. No, I mean, like a lot of people, you know, I guess the research could have gone on and on. I, I was sort of, um, I, I kind of had a, a, a sort of deal agreed to write it, but um, but I was, for me, half the half the fun of, of sort of writing books is obviously is the researching of them as well. Maybe it's the journalist, I don't know, whatever. But I love it, and I would go up to the National Archives and the RF Museum and visit people and that sort of thing. And to be honest, when lockdown struck, it kind of was like, right, well, you've got to, this is now an excuse just to get on and write the thing, you know. So, um, yeah, I sort of, you know, between that and the day job, just cracked on really. And it, I guess it helped, although it was difficult, like a lot of people have found, trying to um, 
you know, like follow stuff up or check stuff. And, you know, there were things that I'd, we've all done this. You, you quickly take a photograph in the National Archives of a, a, a file that you've got and it's slightly blurry and you're like, oh, damn, I can't go back and check it, you know. So that was a bit of a bummer. But apart from that, I can't complain really. I think I've got very lightly compared to a lot of people. And the result is is fantastic. You know, you very kindly sent me a copy of the book and I blitzed through it really quickly because it is it is superb. And I think the I thing that you. makes it really is you keep the focus on the people. You know, you, you, you bring in the technology, the aircraft and the like, but by making it such a human story on both sides of you know, the, both the Pathfinder force, the RAF, and also what was happening in Germany, I think it, it, it allows a sort of sensitivity to the subject that could be lost if we were just talking about tonnages and distance to target. Well, it's people, isn't it? I mean, that's what, for me, that, that is what, if, if, if I'm one of sort of what really grabs me about, you know, I like telling stories about, about people and, and, and there's no doubt that war and conflict does sort of, you know, it does create uh, a lot of really fascinating stories, right? And without sounding trite, you, you kind of do get, you know, ordinary ordinary people, people like us, who are chucked into, into the most extraordinary circumstances. And, and that sort of, um, that kind of jeopardy is what I find fascinating, whether it's right at the top, you know, amongst the kind of decision makers, or whether it's, you know, some 17, 18 year old who's, who's in a Lancaster over Berlin, you know. What you've sort of brought out in that is, is this aspect that, whereas we all kind of get off a lot of time on the kit, the reality was a lot more different than seeing these beautiful aircraft flying around doing quite terrible things a lot of the time. And that's what we're going to chat about. We're going to talk about the people and one person in particular, because we are not going to spoil the book by going through it chapter and verse, because let's face it, dear listener, you should really have bought it already if you haven't. Um, but let's talk about a few of the people involved. Let's dive into it. We'd, we're not going to spend too much time on the opening because that would be stealing the opening of the book and that's also a terrible thing to do but let's talk about the RAF and the players in particular one or two I found very interesting because Arthur Harris we know we think we know quite a lot about but Sidney Bufton is someone I had never heard of and he seems to have made a bit of a nuisance of himself post-Coventry to apply the same sort of tactics within Bomber Command. And he was a very, very young man. Yeah, he was 33, which, which is young, isn't it? And, and <clears throat> he was known as Buff, Sidney Bufton. He was a, a wing commander who joined the um, Air Ministry as a, as a deputy director of bomber operations in late 41, I think. And, and he had seen, he was unusual amongst um, desk-bound officers because he, he had combat experience uh, and he knew just how as much as anyone just how difficult it was to to kind of find and illuminate targets at night and and, and a lot of your viewers and your listeners will, will know this right but i mean obviously um bomber command um with the best will in the world you know it, it at pre-war of course and early in the war it set up to bomb during the day and that had been absolutely disastrous um so it switched to bombing at night um but of course you know that wasn't really much better uh, you know, the idea of bombing over, over mainland Europe at night, you know, with terrible weather, um, kind of uh, a blackout over mainland Europe. And of course, you know, just one or two Germans who didn't like the idea of, of them flying over territory. Um, and and, and I, I think a, a lot of people will be aware of uh, the Butt Report, David Butt, who was a young uh, economist who 
uh, was asked to kind of um, study bomber bomb aiming photographs and there are a number of conclusions but but sort of in a nutshell perhaps the most startling was that on moonless nights I think it was something like one in 15 bombers uh, managed to reach their target I think that's right off the top of my head and the RF had seen what what happened in Coventry and although it was slightly different because uh, the Luftwaffe had, had actually basically dropped incendiaries and then it was the fire that was then used to draw to draw kind of other bombers in. They, they really did see the advantage of some sort of flare force. And it had been used kind of, you know, a little bit in isolated sort of parts. But I think where where kind of Sidney Bufton came in is that he he kind of drafted plans for a single target finding force, which would be bought under one roof, um, uh, or, or as he said, kind of, you know, the, the crew is drinking the same beer. And he kind of liked the idea of, you know, of all these kind of, you know, um, elite and experienced crews all coming together to then file on the head, find the target. And, and that's why initially it was called a sort of target finding force rather than uh, rather than pathfinder force. Um, and he kind of envisaged it, envisaged it as the cavalry of bomber command. Um, sadly, however, his early attempts... Uh, went down like a sack of whatever with Bomber Harris. He just wasn't at all interested in it. He liked the idea of, of of individual squadrons or individual groups having their own elite. But he, he thought if you put them all together, it will kind of be a sort of core elite and it will it will create kind of envy amongst the others. Uh, you know, I understand his, his point to a degree. So, so, so even early on, there was quite a lot of friction there as, as Buff was trying to persuade Harris despite the fact that he had the support of, of Lindemann, you know, Churchill's scientific advisor, and also um, Baker, uh, he had their support, but he just couldn't really get Harris one round to start with. I think you're absolutely right. You know, Harris is trying to build a cohesive unit and he doesn't want a, a, a special, special bunch, so to speak, off to one side, grabbing the glory. But he is brought around... I guess by hook or by crook, he's sort of told he has to establish something because the results aren't there. So he turns to someone he knew from before the war, and we're going to be introducing now an Australian chap by the name of Don Bennett. Who was he and why did Harris turn to him? Because he had quite the career before being put in charge of what would become the Pathfinders. Yeah, Don Bennett, I, I, you know, I, I've not heard of him obviously before before really researching this, but um, he, he's great. So he, he sort of, so he was Australian, was born in 1910. Uh, he grew up on, a, on, a, on a, a ranch, like a cattle ranch in Queensland. He kind of was, was, was sort of quite unlikely really um, in the sense that he was, you know, he, he kind of, he was a single-minded cowboy. You know, he, he, he kind of, um, he spent his childhood um, you know, uh, you know, but using red hot irons, branding the steers, and he, he he could ride on horseback by the age of ten, and he stepped under the stars, and you know he was something of a kind of um, a sort of slightly rough around the edges, if you like. He was the youngest of four brothers, all of whom, uh, I think, three of whom, two of whom went into into law, and and, and that Bennett admittedly that gave him something of a sort of insecurity complex. He he wanted to be the best, but he didn't want to follow them into, into law. He just found that too tedious. Um, and to cut a long story short, he was fascinated by air. He was obviously, if you remember, of course, you know, flight in the you know, 20s and 30s was still obviously very, still very new. Um, 
And so he joined the like, Royal Australian Air Force. And in 1930, he came over to the UK and joined the RAF. Um, and he was, he was a natural. He, he really was a, a quite superb airman. Uh, but also, importantly, he was a brilliant navigator. Um, in fact, Harris described him as, as the most efficient airman I've ever known. And by 1935, you know, if you look through kind of newspaper cuttings and things from the time, you know, even then, he's being described as kind of, you know, one of one of the sort of most skilled airmen in the world. I mean, quite how they measure it, I don't know. But, you know, he, as I say, it wasn't just about the flying, it was about the navigation too. Um, and when he came over to the UK, he joined the RAF and he ended up at Calshot. And actually, it was there that he served. I think it was there that he served under Bomber Harris. Um, so he kind of, the two men had come across each other. And over the year, over the next few years, he served with various squadrons. Um, and it was there, I think. I mean, I would might just touch upon kind of another part that, that changed Bennett's life before we move on with his career, which was his meeting of his wife, if I may, Matt. Of course, she's fantastic. Yeah, so her name was, was Lee. Uh, Lee Gubler, and she was a, a Swiss. She was the daughter of a of a Swiss jeweler in Zurich, and she came over to be the the, the nanny of the of the commanding officer at Calshot. And uh, one evening, she was um, they were they were there was a performance of a, of a play, I think, at the, at the base. Uh, and Don Bennett and a few friends thought they'd go along to watch. Probably you know, probably midweek in mid nineteen thirties. Probably wasn't much else to do, frankly, out of uh, when you weren't on duty and um you know and there they met and, and and they sort of you know their eyes met across a crowded room you know that's sounding like a cliche and uh, and the rest is history and and um they married a few months later and i think she had something of an influence on don bennett i mean i spoke in a lot of detail to to their daughter noreen who lives in buckinghamshire and she's in her early 80s now and she's wonderful noreen bennett don bennett was an he's presented actually as something of a a, 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 as in a sort of aloof, no-nonsense kind of, you know, he was gruff and, and, and kind of, if you crossed him, you know, you crossed him at your peril, da 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 da, da and he was an, an aviation obsessive. And, and I think, you know, all those, you know, there's no smoke without fire, all those things are true to a degree. But actually, there was far more to him than that. You've got to remember, right, that, and we'll come to the Pathfinders in a moment, but when Don Bennett commanded the Pathfinders, in 1942, he was only 32 years old, and he had the huge responsibility of, you know, spearheading most of Bomber Command's operations over mainland Europe most nights. Uh, a little wonder that, that he perhaps appeared to be someone, you know, who was sort of rather kind of single-minded. But Lee was really important because I think she, you know, she kind of brought out her sense of humour. She stood up to him. Um, and she was she was extraordinarily intelligent. She spoke a number of languages, um, and I think she kind of humanised him in a way. So you know, I, th I think behind every man often there's, there's quite a sort of um, powerful woman, and I think there's no doubt that that, that kind of in this case it was true as well. Um, so after they were married in the mid thirties, nineteen thirty six, I think it was, uh, they came back, and Don Bennett um, joined Imperial Airways, where he flew all around from the UK to Africa, uh, across to Europe, to Asia. And you've got to remember, still at this point, flying was still very, you know, still quite new. So he was kind of really setting a number of records, distances and that sort of thing. Um, he ended up being the first to, 
to fly a, a baby across the Atlantic, which was Noreen, his daughter. Um, and he then uh, joined the Atlantic Ferry Organization, where he, uh, by the uh, late 30s, early 40s, he, he, he broke the winter barrier, which is fascinating. Got to remember, it doesn't seem long ago, but you know, as, as little as 80 years ago, people still hadn't flown over the North Atlantic uh, in the winter. Um, and he achieved that as well. And that was all down to the mixture of this, this very, very good navigation um, and his airmanship too. I love that on the boat to their honeymoon in Australia, he wrote an entire book about navigation. I just think me trying to squeeze some reading in on my honeymoon didn't go down particularly well. Oh, yeah, the, the, the complete navigator, it was cool. But the best thing about that is that, um, <laughs> is that, yeah, he did write that. And I think Lee helped him a bit with that and that's fine. But the best thing as well is that um, uh, she also got to work on his wardrobe so, um, you know, newlyweds, she clearly wasn't happy with some of what he wore. So basically, when he was writing his book, she'd go into their cabin and, and those bits of um, his wardrobe she didn't like, she'd then go up on the deck and chuck over the side. So, <laughs> so as this ship spent six weeks sailing to Australia, so this bits of clothing would be floating away in the wake, you know. Um, and in fact, when, when they got to Australia, he was introducing Lee to all his family. And this was a big deal, right, for the Bennett family. And they were all going to be lined up along the quayside. And the local media were there because they were in quite an important family. And, you know, and, um, uh, and I think he was so nervous that he sort of squeezed a huge blob of toothpaste into his hands and started shaving with it, you know. I mean, so, so it kind of shows how important, you know, their relationship was to him as well. Um, but, yeah, he set all these... He set all these um, uh, all, all these records. And there's the other one, of course, which was the um, the Mercury, which was this kind of slightly weird um, uh, two planes. It was, it was two, it was a four-engine seaplane, which was called the Short Mayo Composite, slightly kind of um, long-winded name. And you had the Mercury, which was a smaller aircraft, attached on top of a larger aircraft called the Mayo. Um, and they looked like a couple of flies mating in midair. So they took off and then, uh, and then the, the, the larger aircraft would split away. Uh, and, and Don Bennett flew that, and that was, um, I think that was his first, certainly one of the first uh, non-stop flights over the Atlantic. It's a remarkable career before, you know, he, the, the things that we're going to get on to talk about, really. And yeah, the interesting thing is he, he doesn't, due to who he is, he doesn't get back into the RAF for the first couple of years of the war, does he? It's Or, or a year of the war, because I think in your book you mentioned it was 1941 that he finally was commissioned back into yeah he doesn't matter and and, and it's interesting because i sort of feel although i can't remember the exact term harris sort of i i think i think harris never quite approved of the fact that he he was he had joined the raf and then he left it to to join commercial airlines and then you know and then the ferry then doing the ferry stuff from from america to britain and I think that was always a bit of a black mark in Harris's eyes, you know, kind of like, you know, the, the idea of the sticking gone, power. Yeah. And like he'd gone back to be a civilian again, you know, um, but, but, you know, you're right. And, and I think that it was, it was his, it was the skill in bringing the fer ferrying military aircraft over from the States in the, in the first couple of years of the war that, 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 that I think it got to the stage where, where the RF were like, look, you know, we, we, we've got to have this guy back in with us. And, and I think that, um, what the final sort of thing was, I don't you know. I suspect Bennett probably thought, "Look, the war's been going for two and a half years. But I really need to, you know, I need to kind of be a part of it now." 
Um, so it was, it was in sort of late, I think late 41, but he ended up going back into the RF, uh, as you quite rightly say, after having like a sort, a sort of flying career that a lot of people might have squeezed into, you know, a lifetime. Um, and it was then, his, you know, it was April 42 that, of course, um, he then had his next adventure before, again, before joining the Barfinders, when he had a crack at the Turpits. That Turpits raid is, is quite something, mainly because he makes a, a decision that seems characteristic for him, but they turn back, as opposed to so many Turpits raids that went in and got lost. And I could be completely yeah, wrong. No, I, I think what happens is he, so, so, so it was April 42 and he was tasked, I think he was a um, 77 squad, but he was tasked with, yeah, with, with bombing the Turpits. And as we know, it, it, it had been tried, it was tried by so many different, you know, parts of the, of the military, you know, kind of trying to sink this thing. There's and whole um, other books about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, exactly. And of course, in my last book, you know, about the, Kamikaze hunters and, and the fleet air arm had had many cracks at it, you know, mm. and was sending in sending in corsairs to drop two, you know, thousand pound bombs under one wing, you know, kind of. But um, so he was he was um, yeah he was he piloted Halifax, and I, I think the, the the plan was to send in some Lancasters first, dropping from much higher height to try to sort of warm up the turf, so to speak, and, and, and then Bennett um, would come from from another direction. Uh, reasonably low, uh, and, and try. And of course, this was pre-ironically they could have done with some of the um, some of the technology the Pathfinders used a couple of years later, which they didn't have, of course. But he did successfully reach the Turpits. But on his way in, his his aircraft got you know battered by shells two or three times. And by the time they actually flew over the ship, um, they they'd sent up, of course, their their kind of um, smoke screen. So the, the navigator, I think, could just about make out the, the shape of the hull, but only just. Um, so in fact, yeah, rather than dropping, the, rather than dropping them, uh, uh, Bennett said, well, look, let, let's turn around and have another crack. So he turned the aircraft around, but by then he realised that um, it was only just a few, I mean, the, one of the wings was burning away, and he realised that they were going to, um, you know, the, the, the wing was going was to drop off, so they had to, had to get out, and so he gave the... Um, he gave the order to uh, to abandon the aircraft, um, and it was pretty it was pretty hairy stuff, Matt, because Bennett recalls that he jumped, and I think his his parachute just blossomed out before he hit, he landed in the snow, so um, they must have been at a pretty low height. And you think, well, that'd probably be enough, but then he works his way home, and. Yeah. There's a, there's a new new job waiting for him with a boss who's not particularly keen on the new job. Yeah, so 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 we obviously, I mean, even getting out of, you know, he he so he and a, a navigator, he, I mean, he saved all his crew, right? But but by managing to to tell them to get out and 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 realise that the aircraft was about to crash, and and he walked for I think two days and three nights. Um, managed to get over the border to Sweden uh, by this time in, in a pretty bad state. I mean, frostbitten and kind of um, hypothermia was about to set in. And of course, but he managed to get there and his, I think two of his crew were picked up and uh, I think another one or another two managed to get over the border as well. Anyway, and of course he was in Sweden and the Swedes were like, well, you know, we're neutral, you're not going anywhere, sunshine. But of course they didn't realise they had Don Bennett on their hands. Um, 
And to cut a long story short, he basically threatened to sue the Swedish government unless they let him go back to um, <laughs> let him go back to, to the UK. So yeah, so, so he ended up going back to the UK. I think it's probably the best decision Sweden ever made, Frank. And he, he'd only been back a few months when he was asked to head up this new force, the Pathfinder force. And, and as you quite rightly say, um, that was quite interesting because Harris, sort of going back a bit, yeah, Sidney Bufton basically had pushed Harris. Um, he'd gone to quite a few squadron commanders who said, yes, we need the Pathfinder force. Harris had gone to quite a few part of his own squadron leaders, or rather those who sort of saw his side of things or group leader who said, oh, no, we don't want one. But a long story short is yes. I think as you quite rightly said earlier, basically people realised that, you know, um, Bomber Command needed to improve and it, and it, and it needed to, to somehow do something quite revolutionary to be able to increase it, to improve its um, accuracy. Um, and so Harris essentially was overruled. Um, but he never really got over that. So whilst weirdly he chose Bennett as to, to head up the Pathfinders, because he really did think Bennett was, you know, one of the best airmen out there and the best navigators, even from that early stage, he kind of set about behind Bennett's back, uh, going about kind of as the war went on, trying to force the Pathfinders into his own into his own sort of you know model. Um, and in their first meeting, and I think it was July. June or July of 42, as they sat down in High Wycombe, where it was. But um, Harris actually said to Bennett, I, I've been against this. I wasn't keen for the Pathfinders to be formed in, in this sort of form, but the it's come down from the Prime Minister, but that's, that's, that, that's what they want. So therefore, I've, it's an order I've had to do it. You know, so I think Bennett was kind of, on the one hand, oh, great, I've been asked to, to head up this new kind of um, pathfinding force. And then he was like, but the guy who's the very man who's asked me to do it doesn't really want me to do it. You know, so it's kind of, yeah, it was a bit of a kind of a bitter aftertaste, really. Because yeah, Harris's vision was different, wasn't it? He he wanted a sort of smaller unit within each each group as opposed to um, this quarter quarter elite again. Yeah, exactly. So he so he wanted. You're quite right. He he, he wanted to have uh, the best airmen uh, in each group, sort of spearheading. Uh, each group, yeah. So it's probably even each squadron, you know, creaming off the best from each squadron, having them in each group. Whereas, whereas Bufton and the rest wanted them all coming together, and as I said, they're kind of drinking the same beer. And I kind of get that, right, as well. I, I do get the fact that if you've got all your, you know, all your really uh, kind of your most experienced crews and your kind of hopefully most technical crews and, and, and the ones with the best ability, all in the same place. You know, and obviously they had one on the technology coming through. So, you know, you concentrate all the tests in there and that sort of thing. It, it seems quite obvious that, you know, you're going to have all your, your best guys together, aren't you? I can see both sides of it. But, but I mean, I think the other thing as well about Bennett and, Harris, Bennett and Harris is that, you know, in some ways they were quite similar in, in, in sort of weird ways. I mean, they were both very headstrong, kind of, you know, alpha males. And there's a lovely quote I've got somewhere as well where, so, so Bennett claims that he liked Harris personally, um, but, but, but he wrote in his biography, actually, he said, sitting across, from his, sitting across from his boss on that July day, Bennett couldn't help observing he was getting a little fat, and like most cop-and-ops, he had a very short temper. There was no sort of love loss between them. Um, I think they grudgingly probably kind of um, respected each other. But, but so, so Harris gave Bennett the green light, and 
July of uh, 42 said off you go and didn't give them very long basically had until I think the 18th of August which is when their first operation was and by then Bennett had scraped together five squadrons uh, one from each group and their first operation in August 1942 was a complete disaster I mean not only did they get the wrong town they got the wrong country um, it was meant to be uh, a target in North Germany and they ended up straying across into Denmark you know and this was sort of joy to the ears of those who were against the, the targeting of the, the, the um, formation of the Pathfinder Force. And one, one guy later famously said, you know, we, we felt rather like a, we felt rather like a, a sort of um, a star footballer who's been bought at some massive transfer price um, and fails to score a goal on his first appearance, you know. It's one of those things you, that could have ended right then and there, couldn't it? But there was too much clout behind it to, keep going and i think exactly yeah, yeah. so saying so you you mentioned there that they're sort of creaming off a, a squadron from each each um each group but bennett put in place some very strict instructions for the the types of crew that he wanted yes he butt heads with with people to, to get them but it was you know again navigation skills but also so you know not guys coming straight in or if they were coming straight in so the top of the top of the class sort of chaps that would be that would be allocated to, to eight group. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He 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 did. He wanted the most experienced crews, uh, and not surprisingly, a lot of squadron uh, commanders didn't want to give away their most experienced crews. Um, and, and, and Bennett didn't always get them. There was Bennett hoped there would be a lure, right? So people who were pathfinders got an increase in pay. They would uh, rather than the usual two two tours of thirty. Uh, operations with the break in between, they would they would complete a tour. Initially, it was a tour of sixty, and then it was reduced to forty five. Uh, and once you'd increased, once you'd finished your tour of forty five as a pathfinder, that was your lot. Although the reality is, a lot of them went in for a, for a second and even a third tour. Uh, and and so, so you get a pay rise; you'd be automatically um, promoted one rank. Um, but also, you got awarded a special pathfinder badge, which was a golden eagle badge, which was made by a company in, in Reading Street in London called J.R. Gaunt and Sons. Um, and that would be, uh, I think that was meant to be a sort of highly prized, uh, well, it was, and it, and it gave the individual a kind of, you know, a sort of a, a bit of a badge of honour, you know, for his future career. Uh, and you've got a Pathfinder certificate, which you get after something like between six and ten operations, and that would be signed by Don Bennett, you know. And, and, and again, it was about kind of trying to say to to the airmen and to the crews, look, you know, come and join us because, you know, this is a bit of um, a bit of sort of brass tacks for you. You know, that, that's sort of the reasoning behind it. But the reality is, Matt, is that certainly whilst quite a few of the experienced crews did join the Pathfinders, their losses early on were pretty grim. Uh, and, and, and by sort of 1943, when we're going into kind of the Battle of the Ruhr, and then, of course, we go into the Battle of Berlin later on and Hamburg and stuff in between, um, Bennett realised he needed another way to um, to kind of to, to, to keep that sort of you know intake coming, um, and that's when he that's when he used a guy called Hamish Mahadi, who was a a, 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 a very sort of ebullient um, Scotsman. He was sort of short in stature and massive in personality. Uh, he was a pilot, and um, Bennett basically called him his horse thief. Uh, and, and, and Hamish Mahadi would go around all the various stations, air bases, um, studying the kind of bombing photographs 
and then basically uh, picking off the crews he wanted. He claimed that he had the power to overrule him. I didn't, I didn't actually think he did, but I think that once you were kind of targeted by Hamish, he would go in there and he'd give talks to the air crews and they'd be sort of, I've got lovely newspaper cuttings of people saying how they were, you know, they were slightly sort of overwhelmed by just how, you know, the magnetism of the pathfinders, how wonderful it sounded. You can tell your mates and it's great and stuff, you know. Um, and he basically had quite a way. In fact, I think one squadron leader wrote a, I found a, a lovely letter in the National Archives from one squadron leader complaining that Mahadi used Gestapo methods to, st- to steal his, <laughs> to steal his M. Well, clearly he didn't, but um, but obviously it miffed them a bit. The only person he never really managed to um, steal any aircrew off, or not anyone substantial, was in was in sort of I think it was April '43. Uh, it was at Five Group, and there was one chap in particular who who had none of it, and, and actually went back and managed to steal back one of his aircrews. And that chap happened to be Guy Gibson. Uh, and he wanted them for his uh, for, for rather an important mission uh, in May. So I loved reading about Hamish Mahadi. He, he he sort of seems like the. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. If if Bennett's the CEO, he's 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 the salesman. He's the guy that takes the idea out and and, and gets gets the buy-in from everybody else. He, oh, completely. He's the, yeah, that's it. I mean, he'd lured them in with the soft soap, you know, and then kind of, and then the reality hit. I mean, don't forget that, that, that you know, technically what would happen is that obviously at Bomber Command, Emma, as we know, were, were volunteers, and, and then Pathfinders technically were volunteers, right? But, but what happened in reality is that, well, firstly, often it was your pilot who would volunteer the crew. So if you didn't like it as a crew member, yeah, you could say, no, I don't want to. But number one, would you want to leave your crew if you'd done quite a few operations with them and you got to them and they were your mates? And, and number two, how would you feel if you did that? So I think most of them did go. But, you know, there are many examples where they were like, oh, we didn't really want to, but kind of we felt we should. Um, so they weren't always they weren't always volunteers at all. Um, but but in many cases, it, it, that lure was was real, right? That they loved the idea of, um, of, of the lure of kind of going to this elite pool. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. 
I like the idea of the golden wings as well. It, it you know, you, you've you've mentioned them before. It, it gives it gives something to aim for because wasn't it ten ops? You didn't get them straight away. You had to complete a certain number, and there was a test. Yeah, there was an exam, so you had to well, exam a test. Yeah, and 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 so you had to complete a certain number, and then you'd be all the all the air crews were so so really the navigator. He was what what, what this this phrase that came up a lot. I think it's quite a phrase at the time, but he was the kingpin, right? Bennett talks in one of his interviews about you know the driver, as in the as in the pilot. Just you know that's kind of five percent of what you need. Navigation is the main thing. In a sense, I suppose you're right. I mean, what's the point in being able to fly unless you know how to actually get there? You know. Um, but in, in this exam, yeah, so, so everyone from the pilot right down to the rear gunner, they'd all be tested and, you know, they, they, would, they would expect to know each other's jobs, not, not intimately, but have a little bit more of an idea. And, um, and in that respect, you know, yeah, they, they wanted, Bennett wanted them all to be as, he wanted them to mirror his own, you know, his own view of what he thought was the complete airman, right? And, and obviously he knew that they couldn't all be like that. But he wanted the standard to be as high as possible. And it wasn't always the way. Again, there's an internal correspondence about, uh, I think it was Bennett or one of his guys, you know, complaining that the sort of bottom of the barrel had been scraped. This is before Mahadi came in, because, you know, they were just getting absolute, uh, you know, that they were getting some pretty sort of um, uh, rusty crews being sent their ways from squadron commanders saying, oh, no, they're wonderful. No, you should take them. Wonderful. You know, they weren't. They were awful. So Bennett would just send them back, you know. Um, so you had quite a few crews being sent back and forth, but they would get this golden. They would get their golden wings. They would get their uh, their Pathfinder badge, yeah, and, and their um, certificate. And that was that was you know they talk about that now. I mean, th- there's a guy who I came across who was who was um, written about uh, because it was a, a, a court case, and he was he was basically done for deception because he he went around. He was known as the man with a withered hand. Um, and I think it was 43, he, he went around and managed to con his way into various air bases uh, and kind of quietly nick things from various staff quarters. And he went to dances, you know, seduce women, all that sort of stuff. And he had a, he had a pathfinder batch, and that's what he really sold his way in on. Um, in fact, he had a withered hand because he, he, he'd injured it on, a, um, on, on, on an anti-aircraft balloon wire. And, and in fact, they, the judge found out, and he basically said, you know, you're trying to pretend you're something higher than you are the pathfinders are wonderful and that's what you were doing to get, you know, so there was this kind of, there was this, um, you know, platform, there was this prestige about being pathfinder and there's no doubt about that. So we, we sort of mentioned the first ops didn't, didn't go well. You've got the great bit in your book about the, the boffins creating the flares that, that would, the Christmas yes. trees that would. Wilfred Coxon. Yes. The one name I haven't put in my notes. Thank you for that. Wilfred Coxon. Let's, let's make sure we, we talk about him. Yeah, Wilfred Coxon. Oh, God, 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 honestly, Wilfred Coxon. So, so like, you, you don't really think about, the, I, I, well, I don't think, right? People think about your, you know, people watching this or listening to this will think about the, obviously the kind of the technology, the aircraft, right? The, the, the ordnance and the navigational technology. But I think it's something that's been completely overlooked and is generally overlooked in, in, in most sort of histories of, of, of Bomber Command's air war is the target indicators because they're the very things that have to tell people where to bomb once they actually get there. And um, yeah, and there was this guy called called Wilfred Coxon, who was a civilian who joined it. He he was a he was a uh, he was from Newcastle. He was a Geordie. Actually, he wasn't. I think he was from, from he was from County Durham. So apologies for that massive faux pas for anyone from that part of the world. 
Um, <laughs> that will lose me a few Twitter followers um, if they haven't gone already. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, a few of my dozen. If I'm feeling nice, I'll take that out of the edit. <laughs> no, don't. Keep it in there. Um, and uh, Wilfred Cox, yeah, so he was from County Durham, and he was a chemistry lecturer. Um, and his last post before joining the air ministry was at the Regent Street Polytechnic uh, in central London, which I don't think is there anymore. But The cinema still is. Yeah, and, and he... So he kind of... He realised, right, that... that, that, that and obviously, again, there had been a few um, sort of isolated tests and things to try to use flares and that sort of thing. They'd seen what the, the Germans had done and Luftwaffe had done in 1940-41. But to cut a long story short, he basically was the guy really behind the invention of the target, target indicator. And um, it's fascinating because it was a combination of his, his kind of um, paratechnical uh, experience and being able to take these 250 pound shells and basically stuff them with candles that essentially kind of glorified fireworks um, and some were uh, sort of uh, used atmospheric pressure to then burst open others were on timers what's really interesting is that he couldn't do that on his own and what I found fascinating when I was early, when I was researching this or at least I thought it was yeah was was the link up between the air ministry and the firework, the British fireworks industry. Um, and, and this was huge, right, Matt? So you had like a contract with, um, this is one example, a contract with a company called Aladdin Industries, which was a really big fireworks company. Um, a contract with one of them was, was the equivalent today to 28 million pounds, right? And, um, that wasn't the only one. There was a Crystal Palace fireworks company. There was there was all sorts. And and so what I found really interesting is that, you know, these airmen who kind of pre-war in the late 1930s would have been schoolboys looking at the fireworks displays in, you know, wherever. They were using the same sort of materials to kind of, you know, wreak death and destruction over, over mainland Europe. And, and then also GEC, General Electric, they were, they were bought in as well. And, and, and again, detailed, fascinating, quite geeky stuff in the National Archives um, about all the tests that have gone at their at their their, um, their research facilities in Wembley, North London. You know, one of them was a massive water tank was set up and they put water in it and they pour in that dettol disinfectant because when you pour in dettol, it kind of clouds up. So that would recreate the mist. They put mosquito gaze gauze over to kind of have other elements and then they get cotton wool puffs and they put them between two pieces of flat glass and if they put those over the top that would that would kind of recreate kind of um you know cloud cover bits of cloud that's just one example of, of all these things that went on and then they'd obviously drop the um they drop sort of flares in which were basically um electric lamps and, and they'd use models to build to try to recreate the conditions to then actually test out these different flares and then Wilfred Cox himself, I think it was in early 43, it was, it was in January 43, he nervously turned up at a, an airfield in, in, uh, in Pathfinder in the country, and it was Witten. And um, there they, two Lancasters, tested all these different types of target indicator. And the next day at a meeting in, in, at Witten with Bennett, they were given the green light. And I think it was the first, it was quite soon afterwards, one of the first um, attacks using them on Essen was a real success. Uh, with mosquitoes 
So kind of Wilfred Cox said, yeah, I mean, everyone knows about Bomber Command. People don't think about target indicators. And then they think, well, you know, where do they come from? And it, a, lot of, a lot of that came from this rather sort of um, inconspicuous guy from um, County Durham. And the, the, the bit I found interesting about your book to, to, to sort of switch sides, so to speak, is the, the target indicators, you know, the Germans called them, German civilians called them Christmas trees, didn't they? Mm-hmm. The, the psychological mm-hmm. effect that they had, because as soon as they saw them, they knew, <laughs> they, they knew they were for it. They did, and, and you're right. And it, it's terrifying, isn't it? Because, uh, <clears throat> you know, they, they, were, they were pretty, right? They were reds and yellows and greens. Yeah, right, exactly. But seeing these things, and, and you know, in my book, I, I, I kind of wanted to try to really give an impression of the grim reality of being under a raid, right? And, and everyone's heard of, obviously, most people have heard of Hamburg, as we know. And, but, but that's how I came across um, Castle, the raid in October 22nd, 23rd, 1943, which um, on, on paper was a, was a textbook, well, the Pathfinders generally did a pretty good job. And certainly the main crews following up did their job perfectly. And it created a grim firestorm, which proportionally was, was, was more damaging than, than, the, than the raid on Hamburg. Um, and, and, and actually within that, there are some there are some really powerful first-hand accounts, mostly from the International Bomber Command Centre up in Lincoln. Um, and they talk about seeing these target indicators falling. And of course, realising that was, you know, without, okay, without sounding sort of cliche, the prologue to terror, right? Um, but also that the airmen, the, the RAF airmen knew how important they were as well, and especially the pathfinders. And they did get a kick out of dropping their target indicators in the right place. But again, I've got diaries of people saying, oh, you know, it's all very well dropping your bombs on the payload, but there's nothing nice than dropping a load of target indicators where it hurts. You know, they kind of, for them, it was really important. And they also, I've got a lovely letter from a guy called John Kelly, who was, who was a Lancaster pilot. And he writes home to his, to his mother in, uh, in 1944, sort of saying, um, God, I can, I can just imagine the terror and he wasn't, he, he isn't really saying this with glee. He's kind of almost saying it with, with kind of sympathy. He said, I can just imagine the terror for, 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 for a German who, who walks out of their front door to see a target indicator burning away on their front lawn, fizzing away in green, realising a few seconds later they're going to be um, underneath a massive bomb load. You know, so it is really interesting, that whole, the whole link and the relationship between the kind of target indicators, what the Germans thought about them and, and, and what we thought about them as well. We, sorry, the British thought about them. Uh, yeah, I, I, f- I found the whole TI element of the book utterly fascinating. Yeah, fascinating, it's, isn't it? Because yeah. yeah. you, you get into that sort of, how do they then counter the, the, you know, the target indicators? How, how, do you, how do you know which ones to hit? And that immediately goes in, into results. And I think one of the one of the interesting raids was the Pina Munda one, because you've got two two different styles going on there. The, the initial raid is, is, is Pathfinder led. And then you have um, the, the second wave coming in following, I guess it's, you can call it a, a timing run under this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Peterman is interesting, right? Because um, so obviously it was the, it was the attack on the V2 facility and it was, it was interesting for a number of reasons. It was, it was the first, uh, well, first of all, it had a, it had a, um, uh, master bomber and there had been a few master bomber raids but this was on a big scale it was like almost it's like 596 bombers or something 
and a guy called John Searby, who was finally got to the 83 squad and a real sort of boy's own hero, you know, really good looking and really sort of experienced. And, and he was tasked to, 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 to be the master bomber. So he circled over the, I think he circled like something like eight times, seven or eight times over the raid over the course of like an hour. Um, an incredibly brave thing to do. But it was interesting because you had, first of all, you had three separate elements of the target uh, that had to be hit. And so basically the pathfinders would come in and they would shift their target indicators from one to the next, whilst you had CRB, John CRB above kind of telling them what to do. And that was done, yeah, that was basically um, uh, kind of, you know, traditional pathfinders. That was that was eight group under Bennett who who kind of, you know, and they got there through using their navigational technology and then they bombed. And then you had five group who... Uh, who came in separately and, and they were trying a different type of um, uh, of kind of target marking using time and distance. Yeah, and, and, and I, I can't recall the exact details to hand, but essentially there was an island off the north coast and they used that as, as a starting to start their timing run in. Um, and it was actually pretty successful. The problem is by the time Five Group arrived, which was in the closing parts of the raid, the Germans had been alerted, the Luftwaffe had been alerted and the night fighters had arrived and five group got absolutely, you know, they got really torn apart because they were sitting ducks. And the other element of the Peenemann raid, Matt, actually, which I wouldn't mind mentioning if I may briefly, because it's often overlooked, is the really important part played by the diversionary raid of the Mosquitoes of 139 Squadron, because um, they were pathfinding the Mosquitoes. And there were only, I think, eight Mosquitoes who made that, or maybe nine. And, and their job was to, because, of course, if you think about the, the Germans looking on radar, all, all they can see is a long stream coming over, coming flying, flying east from the UK. Um, and, and, and often what would happen is the stream obviously would come along, then it would, then it would sink south to Berlin. And, and in fact, Peenemünde regularly, the, air, the um, air raid alarms had gone off because they kind of, uh, because the raids would be coming in, but nearly always they, they didn't go there. So it was slightly like the boy who cried wolf. They kind of when they heard the air raids again, they thought, well, they won't be targeting here. And in fact, what happened is that the mosquito bombers flew on ahead uh, and went in first to target Berlin. Um, and of course, that drew the night fighters to Berlin, which allowed the main force over Peenemann. It gave it, I don't know the exact timing, but it certainly gave it, I think, you know, 20, 30 minutes more than it might have had. And it meant they were relatively unharassed until the latter stages when... Obviously, the mosquitoes have long since left, and the and the night fighters realised what had happened, um, and they made their way over to me at Peenemünde. Um, and in fact, the you know in the end, I think what they, forty bombers were lost, six point seven percent of the force, um, two hundred eighty eight bomber command airmen were dead. Um, but but I think Martin Middlebrook, uh, that who, historian who I rather rate, he he estimated he reckons the Luftwaffe estimated that they might have shot down 200 bombers, uh, more bombers, if the diversionary raid of Berlin hadn't been successful. So there were a number of elements to the pathfinders, and that was Bennett who, who kind of really devised that diversionary scheme. He did with all of them. So again, I think it's really important. You had not only the, the, the sort of master bomber capability and the kind of shifting the target marking that the pathfinders really were instrumental in sort of pushing, but also that diversionary raid as well. Got one three nine's most famous chap is a navigator in Oak Cross, isn't it? Oak Cross, yeah. 
what, 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 a, what a man. Um, a show should be dedicated to him just on his own, especially for his achievements after the war as well, because he is oh, he's, a he's the not, Yeah, yeah, great. Um, but let, let's, let's sort of build on that, um, the sort of different moving pieces that Bennett put in with diversionary raids, the TIs and things, because the measure of results, they just get, you know, the bomber command's accuracy in, in the dark just increases, increases from 43, 44. And then that sort of period, late 44, 45, after they've moved from tactical back to strategic, it's devastating just how how accurate bomber command is when just a few years later they were barely hitting the right country. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, this, isn't it? Because, like, the whole idea of sort of accuracy and precision, I mean, at, at the end of the day, this is this was still 80 years ago, and, um, and it's not sort of precision on today's terms, is it? But you're right. Certainly, if you look at, if you remember that stat I talked about earlier, where one in 15 bombers was reaching within three miles of its target. Well, by 1945, uh, that was 95% of bombers. And, um, you know, um, clearly, clearly uh, the opposition had got a lot weaker. Of course it had. But you still had, putting the opposition to one side, honestly, night after night, the problems were often the weather, the problems were often kind of, you know, um, the industrial haze over Germany. So I think that 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 there was such such a transformation in in the accuracy, but also in the intensity as well, right? So there are some really interesting stats about how because their navigation got better thanks to Obo and which was type of navigation, also thanks to something called HGS, because their navigational ability, they were able to close up the bomber streams much more. And because they were able to close up the bomber streams, obviously it meant they could get more bombers over the target in a much shorter period of time. So it was much about the intensity of the bombs, as it the bombing, as it was about, I think, the accuracy. You know, and that's again, I think that's the sort of key thing that's often overlooked. Uh, the intensity of the bombs was was was, was and I have got figures um, here somewhere I can find them, but that that's really, um, you know, it's really where the kind of the, the the big change happened. I think when when we say accuracy and precision, we need to seriously grade that on a curve because. I think yeah. one of our, it's, it's my personal bugbear, as, as listeners of this show will know, what our, we have been, I don't want to say spoiled, but our ideas have kind of been ruined since the first Gulf War of this idea of a, of, of, of a missile going through a window, and we only ever saw the good ones. Whereas, right. you know, in, in, in 1940s, accuracy was hitting the right neighborhood, let alone the right factory. Um, or to be fair, the right district of a city, let, let alone a, a neighbourhood. It's yeah, ex exactly. Matt. And also, I mean, after D-Day, of course. I mean, I know, you know certainly, I've, I've come across quite a lot of, you know, evidence that you know, um, mosquitoes, especially flying lower level, were able to, to to target quite accurately. But we're talking about being quite pleased if they got within like a couple of football pitches, because that might not sound much. But then, if you've got, if they are often leading a leading a bigger force of of aircraft, then clearly, you know, if you've got if you've got sort of a few dozen lights behind you or something, you know, dropping on the payload, then obviously you're going to a couple of foot pitches doesn't really make it's not much heel there. You're, you're hopefully going to you're going to bomb the general area, right? But I, I I very rarely came across any examples of of what we think of as precision bombing in today's terms. You're exactly right. It was very much something about the intensity, and of course they talk about accuracy back then, but I think. 
the definition of accuracy has obviously changed in 80 years. Completely. And I think what we have to do is look at, at the results of the raid, both on you know, sort of the output and you know, the psychological. Yes, you know, bombing didn't win the war on its own. But you know, as, as, as some of your some of the interviews in your book with with German civilians show, it was it was getting to the point where it was it was harrowing beyond belief. And I think yeah, you know, I, I keep wanting to just sort of make this point that the bit I really, really I don't want to say enjoyed, but found fascinating in your book is when you shift perspective and, and, and put us on the ground with the German civilians at Castle and, and and a couple of the other raids in, in Hamburg. We, yeah, we can, it was yeah. it was terrifying being in a bomber. Yeah. It was even more terrifying being on the, the receiving end of it. Yeah, it, and I think it's it's easy to look back, isn't it, and 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 think, oh, how terrible, you know? Why did they do that? I mean, it's an obvious question that people are asked all the time about the bombing offence over Europe, isn't it? But I think it is very easy to look look back eighty years ago, and you know, kind of it was a very different time. And I think there was a genuine feeling back then that, you know, the Allies' backs are certainly early on the war against the wall and they had to do all they could to to take the war over to, to Germany. And, and I think that there's no doubt that the Pathfinders, their contribution to the air offensive, you know, um, I mean, there's never, I think, I, I think you're right, there's not, there's no, there's no one means of winning the war is what I'm trying to say, but their contribution to the, to, to the to the air if it ensured that you know bomber command played a significant role in 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 the allied in the eventual allied victory i can't see how it couldn't have done i mean you get people sort of saying that it made no difference but you just need to read people like richard avery you know who i really 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 rate and they're like how can you not think that the air offensive over germany made a difference it must have made a contribution however grim as it was for the people underneath yeah, I remember Paul Woodage and I chatting to Colin Bell and we came with a, a rather woke question about, you know, <laughs> what's, why, why, and was it, and yeah, you, you know, Colin, well, he puts you straight quite quickly and, and to the point that it was, yeah. it was the, it was the job to do. And it, 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 it played its, it played its, its, its part. Well, I sort of hope that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, still ask difficult questions and discuss oh, it. And I think well, yeah. even veterans as well, right? I, I don't think it's disrespectful to say to someone or to at least raise the subject of, of what it was like the other end. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, and that's why I, I wanted to do include Castle because, but, but I suppose, interestingly, a lot of people will say, okay, but look what was happening over here. And it wasn't the same level bike, but there was a feeling at the time. And again, there's a lot of evidence, contemporary evidence that, you know, Coventry had been hit and London had been hit and all the other cities and you know in a sense well they did it to us let's do it to them and you know kind of that that was a drive I think for a lot of certainly civilians at the time as well you know let's let's give them hell because they gave us hell you know and I think quite a few airmen still feel that and you know if they feel that that's that's their problem it it's a it's a mindset that thankfully we don't really understand having that completely agree we're not going to sort of spoil the rest of the battles because Bennett and Harris were at it right, right the way to the end of the, the end of the war. You know, Ralph Cochran makes a, a storming entrance in the, the latter part of, of, of your book, which we, we will say, if you want to learn about that, buy the book. And um, 
we're going to come back to that in a second. But what did what did Don do next? Because he 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 stuck around for a little bit and then um, and then waltzed off again. In in Harris's opinion, yeah. So so he he's sort of being courted to to join all three political parties post war. Not surprising, and and he did very briefly dabble in politics, but he hated it. Um, so he left, and in fact he went back into aviation, and he. He flew one of the first commercial, if not the, the first commercial flight out of what is now London Heathrow Airport. Um, and it was lovely. It was quite a family affair. So, so Noreen and Lee Bennett um, gave out, made the sandwiches and gave them out to the crew, uh, to, to, the, um, uh, to the passengers before they took off. And it was converted Lancaster, I think. And it was making its way, I think, to South America via the Azores or something. So it was like, you know, it's not like it was a sort of, you know, short run over to France or something. So he went into aviation and then he, he then, of course, as well as doing that, he was, he loved speed, right? So he was a big, big, well, like you are, of course, Matt, big fan of the old four wheels. So he, um, he was in the Monte Carlo rally for, for, and he appeared on six or seven occasions with, by the way, Noreen as his navigator on a number of occasions. And that's another story, but uh, it's fascinating her, her sort of, I mean, she, she was a, she's, was a big, big fan of, of those classic cars. And then he, he launched the Pathfinder Association. He never forgot about his, his men and, um, you know, was always very much their sort of biggest fan, but was always gutted. They never got a, got a proper medal, mm. as was um, Harris, of course. Is that they both campaigned quite hard for it through the, the, the later years of their life, didn't they? And unfortunately, never... <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> and, you know, he died in 1986 age 76 and I have a feeling that one of his you know one of his kind of um regrets was that was that they, they, they never necessarily got full recognition they should have done so that's what Don did next what's Will doing next because the book has been the book's been doing quite well hasn't it it's, it's I've I loved it and everyone I've spoken to who's read it has had a has really really um, been complimentary about it so now, as is as is the modern thing, yeah, we, we've moved on now. So what's what's next from from Will? <laughs> as is the modern thing. Well, I'm doing a TikTok. No, I'm not. Um, uh, so so I, I look. You know, the the, the the thing about both the, the Kamikaze unders about the, this book is, is that um, sort of they, they were things that that kind of grabbed me, and, and I kind of felt that the stories hadn't necessarily they, they'd been told, but not through the, the I guess the prism of the people really. Um, at least not how I wanted to and, and I still feel that the whole idea about, about kind of people in conflict and war is what really gets me going um, so, so I've got a few ideas Matt I'm looking at at the moment quite, quite early on one is a sort of potentially one about the um, Royal Naval Patrol Service um, mm. another one about shall we say celebrities in war in, in, in the Second World War uh, and I've even got a First World War idea I'm looking at but I think not sure yet. We'll see. Uh, again, it's just about whether or not it's it's something that people out there are going to kind of feel. Yeah, I'm really grabbed by the people in this, you know. So uh, definitely something coming up. I just need to decide which one. They all sound fascinating. And of course, if you want to learn about Will's first book, Kamikaze Hunters, go back to episode 241 of History Hack, and uh, the boss ladies. Grilled you quite deeply on on, on that one, I and I would accept nothing more. And uh, I 
thoroughly enjoyed it. And in fact, you know, there's still quite, quite a few of the key guys who were in that book uh, are still around, like 99, 100, and, you know, yeah, do read it if you can, because as much as I love the Pathfinders, even less people know about carrier flying, and especially the Pacific War and the British Pacific Fleet and the fact that we were involved, that, sorry, the British were involved in the very last dogfight over Tokyo Bay in 1945, and it's still, when you say, oh, yeah, kamikazes, and they're like, what, the what the British? Who? So, yeah. Well, my, my, my good mate, Nick Adlam, is a huge fan of that book. As, yeah. as the Corsair okay. is, his, is, his, is his first love. Despite both of our predilections towards typhoons, he would he get his hands on a <laughs> I Corsair. Do, I do. I've, got, I've got Matt Bingo here. I can tick on typhoons. <laughs> I've got to work it into every show, otherwise we lose listeners. <laughs> So well, my next book is about the typhoon. No, it's not. It's oh, fantastic. There you go. I, I, I can help. Yeah. <laughs> or hinder. One I'll leave two. that to you. Yes, we, 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 should, we should come back to that. Um, Will, thank you so much. It has been, it's been good fun. We, we will have a little competition as well for this book. So for that, which once I figure out how we're going to do it, keep an eye on the social medias. If you're listening to this on day of release, you will be able to see more. If you're coming to this... In the future, you've missed out, but do head to our very own bookshop where we have copies of Will's book ready for you to purchase. Will, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, ho hopefully it's been entertaining. And uh, yeah, do buy the book. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've enjoyed it. And I suppose that's half the battle. Yeah, and that, that is one of the key things. I, I was very pleased when I got your uh, thumbs up because I was slightly uh, trepidation of what you might think of it. So thank you. Super, thank you. I'd like to thank Will once again for coming on Hedge Hopping. He has very kindly, as we mentioned in the podcast, offered up two copies of his book, which he will sign personally to you should you be lucky enough to win it. So we're going to do a competition on our Twitter page and also one for our patrons. So if you sign up for Patreon, you get a slightly closed competition, whereas the Twitter one will be out in the wilds of the Twitter machine. So please check out both of those. You can sign up for Patreon at patreon.com forward slash history hack. Or if you see the competition tweet, which will be threaded to the main one for this episode, all you'll have to do is follow history hack and reply to the competition tweet. Hashtag win pathfinders. That's hashtag win pathfinders. All one word. So I can figure out who's actually entered the competition. The competition will run from the 9th of September and the winner will be picked on the 16th of September and will be advised via direct message on Patreon and Twitter. Of course, there's an easy way to get hold of Will's book and that is through our very own bookshop. If you head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, Will's book is available as is his first one, The Kamikaze Hunters, which is ace. 10% of every sale goes to supporting the podcast. And in this case, you get one, or if you buy both of Will's books, two fantastic aviation books that you will not regret. So until the next time, thank you so much for listening to History Hack. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.